kind of an interesting story behind this lesson in a way that I'm going to present this morning. I told my wife the other day what I was going to discuss, and she laughed. And she said, well, that will be kind of like that illustration you gave a few weeks ago to, to illustrate uh, your point, and said, what was that sermon about? I don't know. And so I thought a minute, and I said, was it the one on, you're talking about the one on a spiritual checkup? Yeah, that's the one. Well, the reason to use an illustration like I'm going to use this morning is to make something simple so you can remember it. I told Teddy the other night as we was working out of the house what I was going to preach on this morning, and he laughed. So when I preach on it, don't you laugh. Brother Marshall Keeble used to be a master of taking a little simple thing and using that to illustrate some great principles that are found in the Bible. And our Lord had quite a knack for taking simple everyday life illustrations and from those illustrations to show a great principle concerning the kingdom of God. Jesus used parables in order to do that. The word parable in the original language means to bring alongside of or reason of comparison. If you turn to the 13th chapter of the book of Matthew, the disciples came unto the Lord and they said, Why speak thou unto them in parables? And he answered and said unto them, because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but unto them it's not given. For whosoever hath, to him it shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. And whosoever hath not, from him it shall be taken away, even that which he hath. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which says, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. And for this people's heart is waxed gross, their eyes are dull of hearing, their eyes have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and should hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. Now underscore it. But blessed are your eyes, for you see, and your ears, for ye hear. Then dropping down, it says in verse 34, All these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spake he not unto them, that it might be fulfilled that which was spoken to the prophet, saying, I open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Why did Jesus speak to them in parables? He spoke in parables so that they would have opportunity to understand the great principles concerning the kingdom of God. And oftentimes a simple parable, a simple illustration, helps us to understand some great principles. And so, since my mother's moving to LaGrange this week, I'm going to take moving or some things that you have to do when you move and use that to illustrate some great principles that are found in the New Testament concerning the kingdom of God. There are several things that you get involved in when you buy a house. One of the first things you have to do is that you have to have the lights 
turned on. You want electricity. You want to be able to see. But do you know that we have the greatest light that there is? In the book of John, for instance, in the first chapter of the book of John, John begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. There was a man sent from God, his name was John. The same came to bear witness of the, that light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteth every man cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came to his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God, even to those who believe on his name. Jesus is that great light. In John 8 and verse 12, he said, I am the light of the world. Jesus is the greatest light that was ever come into this world. And we need to comprehend that light. We need to see that light. We need to come to that light. And there is a real danger that we will not allow that light to shine in our lives, but we will live in darkness. In the 12th chapter of the book of John, he said in verse 46, I am come a light in the world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not, for I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words, hath one that judges him the word that I spake, the same shall judge him in the last day. Jesus said, I come a light into the world. Do we allow that light to shine into our lives and obey the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Do we allow the light of the gospel to cause us to live like we ought to live as the children of God. There's a contrast that's set forth in the New Testament between light and darkness. If you turn, for instance, back to the third chapter of the book of John, you'll find in verse 19 that Jesus said, and this is the condemnation, that light is come in the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds might be made manifest, that they might be wrought in God. Do we really want light in our lives? The light of the gospel is going to make manifest the deeds of our life. It's going to make them visible. It's going to make them known. But unless we allow the light of the gospel to shine within our lives, then we'll be groping about in spiritual darkness. We'll be unable to cope with the problems of life. We'll be unable to cope with the greatest problem in life, the problem of sin. It's only when we come to that light 
that we can allow that light to open up our sins so that we can have our sins forgiven in obedience to the gospel of Christ. We need the light of the glorious gospel to shine in our lives. Another passage. Turn to the book of Ephesians in the fifth chapter of the book of Ephesians. And beginning with verse 8, the account says, For ye were sometimes darkness, but now ye are the light of the Lord. Walk as children of light. Now I'm going to read from the American Standard Version in verse 9. The King James says, For the fruit of the Spirit. The American Standard says, For the fruit of light is all goodness, righteousness, and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Christians are to walk in that light. Christians are to allow the light of the glorious gospel of Christ to shine in our life. In Psalms 119, verse 110, the account says, Thy word is a light unto my feet, and a lamp under my pathway. We need to allow the light of the glorious gospel to shine in our lives and to show us how to walk and to walk in that light. In the book of 1 John, in the first chapter of the book of 1 John, beginning with verse 5, he said, This is the message that we have heard of him and declared to you God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Christ Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We need light. We have that light given in the gospel of Christ. And we need to allow that light to cause us to walk within the gospel. Second Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4 warns that there are some whose heart will be blinded and they will refuse to walk in the light of the glorious gospel of Christ. Why? They deceive themselves. They're walking in darkness. They're walking in outside the light and they're blind to it and they cannot see that they are outside the light. In the ninth chapter of the book of John, Jesus performed a most notable miracle. He healed a man that had been blind from his mother's womb. And the real blind folks were the scribes and Pharisees. And they refused to see the miracle. They'd close their eyes to it. They would not see. How can one know whether he's in the light or in the darkness? He can look to the light to see whether he's walking therein. If he closes his eyes to the light, he'll not be able to see whether he's walking in the light. He will blind himself. I'd just as soon be physically blind as to walk around all the time with my eyes closed. In that very parable that I noticed in the beginning of the lesson, in Matthew 13, that's what Jesus said about those folks. Why they'd close their eyes. And they refused to see whether or not they were walking according to the principles that Jesus taught them. We need to recognize that we need light. We have that light. We have a beautiful example 
in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we can walk in His footsteps. John 14, 6, He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. In 1 Peter 2, beginning verse 21 through 24, He says He's given us an example that we can write over, that we can mimic, so that we might walk in His steps. In the second place, when you go to buy a house, you're going to want to get a telephone, a line of communication. But we have the greatest line of communication that there is as the children of God. If you turn, for instance, to the book of Philippians, in the fourth chapter of the book of Philippians, beginning in the latter phrase in verse 5, he says, The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Do we realize the value of prayer and the beauty of prayer? Do we realize what it means that we can call upon the name of our Father which is in heaven? In the book of First Peter, in the third chapter of that book, in verse 12, Peter said, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. His ears are open unto their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Prayer is a great privilege that belongs to those who are the children of God. John 9, 31 says, We know that God heareth not sinners. But if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. One cannot call upon the Father unless he's a child of God, unless he is in that relationship with the Lord. What a beautiful privilege it is to be the sons of God, to be the children of God, Galatians 3, 26 and 27, and to be able to call upon the Father and to be able to make request of Him. But in the book of James, in the fourth chapter of the book of James, James says there is a real danger that we can misuse and abuse prayer. And he says in the first place that we misuse it because we fail to use it at all. You lust and have not. You kill and desire to have and You cannot obtain. You fight and war and you have not because you ask not. And you ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you might consume it on your lust. What's James saying? He's saying, number one, you don't pray when you ought to. And number two, when you do pray, you pray for the wrong reason. And we need to watch and be careful lest we fit into the category James is talking about. We need to be thankful for everything. And we need to pray to God and Give him the thanksgiving for all that he's given unto us. We need to pray as the children of God. And we need to keep in mind others and not pray selfishly when we do pray. James is talking about individuals that would come to the Lord and the only time that they would pray to him is selfishly. We need to realize the great value of prayer. Then in the fifth chapter of the book of James, he says in the latter part of verse 16, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. 
Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by a space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. We need to realize the value of prayer. We need to be indeed a praying people, those who pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks unto God. But in the third place, when you move into a new house, you're going to want to turn the water on, are you not? We have a water that's sweeter and better than the water of the city of the Granger, any well water or spring water that you might find. Turn with me in the fourth chapter of the book of John. And there is a woman of Samaria who has come to the well of Jacob. And it's about the sixth hour. Jesus was wearied from his journey, verse 6. And the woman came to the well to draw water, and Jesus said unto her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone away into the city to buy meat. And so the woman of Samaria said, How is it that thou, being a Jew, asketh me a drink, who am a woman of Samaria? The Jews had no dealing, you see, with the Samaritans. But Jesus had asked this woman for a drink of water. Jesus answered and said unto her, verse 10, underscore, If thou knewest the gift of God, who it is that saith unto thee, Give me a drink, thou wouldest ask of him, and he would have given thee living water. There's a kind of water that's better than all other kinds of water that there are on this earth. That's that living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence cometh living water? How are you going to get me living water? She does not understand. He's not going to get water out of the well to give her living water. Art thou greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank thou of himself and his children and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall never thirst again. Whosoever drinketh the water that I give thee shall never thirst. But the water that I give thee shall be a well of water springing up unto everlasting life. Now that's the kind of water we ought to really be interested in. You know, you can get up and you can be thirsty and you can get your drink of water. And it won't be too many hours before you want another drink of water, won't you? You want something else to drink. Now, I realize some of our young folks may rather drink Coca-Cola, but they're getting water in that Coca-Cola. They just don't realize. But you'll get thirsty again. I don't care who you are. When you drink, there's going to come a time when you will thirst again. But Jesus said, I've got a water. And when you drink that water, ye shall never thirst. That's water unto everlasting life. That's a water that will satisfy the deeper longings of a man's life. You see, when you partake, and he'll use this illustration about meat over in John 4 and in John 6. When you partake of the meat and partake of the water of everlasting life, then you will be fully satisfied. 
And there is no other water that fully satisfies. Christianity is the only thing that can satisfy the deeper longings of a man's heart. In the book of Psalms, in the 37th Psalm, for instance, he says, Trust in the Lord and do good, and so shall thy dwell in the land, for better thy shall be fed. Delight in the Lord, and he shall give thee all the desires of thy life. Commit thy way unto the Lord, and he shall bring it to pass. And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light is the judgment of the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently on him. Fret not because of him who prosper in the way, because the man who bringeth about wicked devices. The only way that one can be truly satisfied is through the water that springs up unto everlasting life. The only way that we can find true satisfaction in life is through New Testament Christianity. There is no other way to be truly satisfied. But he satisfies the deeper longings of a man's soul with living water. And that living water is available to all of us in the gospel of Christ. And there is no other source of that living water. Turn to the book of Revelation. In the 22nd chapter of the book of Revelation. In verse 17. The spirit and the bride say come. Let him that heareth say come. Let him that thirst come. And whosoever will. Let him take of the water of life freely. Jesus has provided living water. And there is an abundant supply. And one can be satisfied through the living water that's provided in New Testament Christianity. It's the only thing that will truly satisfy the deeper longings of one's heart. But then again, in the fourth place, when you buy a new house or buy a used house, you're going to have to fix it up. There's some cleaning up that's got to be done. You can buy a brand new house. And unless they've done it for you before you go in, you're going to have to clean it up. And they may paint the walls. And they may be fresh with painted all white and pretty. But one of those workmen's going to go by there and he's going to have a little grease on his hand and he's going to get it on the wall. And it's going to be dirty. So you've got to spruce it up a little bit. You've got to clean it up a little bit. Why is that not true concerning our lives? Do we not need to keep our lives continually spruced up? In the book of Revelation, in the third chapter of the book of Revelation, Jesus said, verse 19, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and I will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh, I will grant with him to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame, and am set down at the throne of my Father which is in heaven. We need to keep our lives continually spruced up and painted up and fixed up and dressed up, if you will. How do we do that? By imbibing the very principles that are found in the gospel of Christ. In the Colossian letter, for instance, in the third chapter of the book of Colossians. 
He talks about the way that we fix up our lives, and there's a negative and a positive side to this. We mortify, as he says in verse 5, and we put to death those things wherein we once walked. We put them off, but then in the place of that, he says we put on, verse 10, listen to it. And have put on the new man, which is renewed in the knowledge of the image of him that created him, whether there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, citizen, bond or free, but Christ is all in all. Put on, therefore, as elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness, and let the peace of God rule your hearts, which you are called to one body. Be ye thankful. How do we clean our lives up? Well, we take off those bad things. And we put on those good things. Romans 6 says the same thing. Ephesians 4 says the same thing. You've got to clean out your life of those ungodly characteristics and put on those characteristics of Christianity. It's simply taking, as the book of Second Peter says in the first chapter of that book, the Christian graces and making application of them to our lives. And besides this, giving all diligence, Add to your faith virtue, to your virtue knowledge, to your knowledge temperance, to your temperance patience, to your patience godliness, to your brother godliness brother kindness, to your brother kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you should neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What's he talking about? Why the garments of a Christian, the dress of a Christian. We dress ourselves up in those garments which are on the inside. They're not garments on the outside, but they're garments on the inside, described in First Peter chapter 3, whose adorning is not an outward adorning, an adorning of the plaiting of the hair, the wearing of gold, putting on the apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God, great price. How are you going to put that on? How are you going to dress it up? You can't get the spit and span out and clean it up. You could scrub to use blue in the face. Sin won't come off that way. You can get common out and scrub all day long. SOS pads so they're all gone. And the bones in your fingers are showing. There's not but one thing that will clean up a lie. And that's to wash it in the blood of the life. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of our sins. Ephesians 1 7, Revelation 1 5. To clean up a life, it must be cleaned by blood. It must be cleaned by the precious blood of Jesus, who without sin offered himself as a sacrifice in our place on the cross. But then again, there's cost involved. There's a price to be paid in owning a home. I think everybody realizes that, that there's a cost. And there is a cost to be a Christian, a child of God. I'd be fooling you this morning if I told you that it did not cost anything to be a Christian. 
In the book of Luke, in the 14th chapter of the book of Luke, there went a great multitude with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man would come after me and hate not his own father and mother and wife and children, brethren, sisters, yea, his own wife, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not, doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Which of you intending to build a tower, set it not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it. Lest happily after he laid the foundation, he is not able to finish. Behold, they begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Yes, there's a cost involved in being a Christian. Are we willing to pay the price? Are we willing to give up sin? It costs more not to be a Christian than it costs to be one. To be one, you must deny yourself. But if you're not one, and you refuse the gospel of Christ, then you'll lose your own soul. Turn back to the 16th chapter of the book of Matthew. Verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There's the cost of being a Christian. You deny yourself, and you take up the cross, and you enter into the labor of the Master. And you follow him, and the cross meant death, and it means you die to self, and you live to the Lord Jesus Christ. For whosoever shall save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. You either give yourself in death to him, or else you'll lose your soul. What is a man profited if he gained the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Now there's the other side of it. Yes, it costs to be a Christian, and it'll cost you yourself, it'll cost you your life, it'll cost you everything you have, and it must be used for the Master. But if you don't give it to the Master, if you're not willing to pay that price, you're going to lose it anyway, and you're going to lose your own soul. It costs to be a Christian. And finally, there's responsibility with owning a house. You have to pay taxes on that house. You have to take the responsibility of keeping that house up. If you don't, your neighbors are going to howl. And I don't blame them. I'd howl too. There's responsibility that comes to owning property. If you rent property, if you rent a house, then your landlord's responsible for keeping that property up. But if you own it, you're responsible for it. And there's a responsibility that belongs to every member of the Lord's church. We can't shift that responsibility. There's an individual responsibility that's mine. First Timothy 3.15 says the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. And I can't shift that responsibility to other folks. But I must bear my share of the load and I must carry out my own responsibilities. That's simply a few things that I wanted to lay alongside this morning and I think illustrate some great principles. You could take almost anything to illustrate great principles in the Bible and lay them out in a simple way. We don't need to miss the point this morning. We need to realize that Jesus is indeed the light of the world and unless we go to him, there is no light. We're living in darkness this morning. We're not a Christian. We're outside of Christ. We have no hope. The only light that there is is to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to realize this morning that if we're outside of Christ, we have no line of communication. We're shut off from God. 
We need to be his children so we can call upon him as our Father which art in heaven. We need to realize that only those who are his children enjoy the great blessings of the kingdom. If we're outside of Christ, we've not partaken of the living water of eternal life, and our lives never will be satisfied. We'll always feel like that there's something missing in my life. And if we're here this morning and we need to clean up our life, we need to spruce it up, we need to dress it up. No one's going to have the right kind of a Christian life unless he puts forth the effort to dress it up. I didn't have time to discuss it this morning, but it takes work to clean up a house. And it takes work to dress up one's life. It's not going to happen without effort on our part. To add on our part the Christian graces, to add on our part the dress of a child of God. We need to realize that indeed it costs to be a Christian. And there's responsibility that all of us have as the children of God. If you're not a Christian this morning, won't you come? The water of life awaits. Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Won't you come? Obey the gospel by faith and baptism while together we stand and sing.